Walter Balfour, the team on the brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs. It's Dave Cameron. And in what follows, as he does every week, every appearance on Fangraphs Audio, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball. Of particular note, this week, on this edition, Cuban defector and apparently uh, quite talented ball player Yon Mancada has signed. He has signed with the Boston Red Sox for $31.5 million, a deal that will cost the Red Sox themselves uh, $63 million in total uh, after accounting for the 100% tax due to the Major League's terms regarding international free agent signings. First and foremost, is the deal a good one for the Red Sox? Is it a good one for Mankata? I ask uh, that of Dave Cameron. What are we to expect from Mankata uh, in the near term and uh, perhaps the slightly less near term? And, and how does he fit uh, within the Red Sox pool of talent? I ask that of Dave Cameron. Finally, the signing of Mankata and the seemingly uh, extravagant amount of money the Red Sox have spent uh, on him dovetails nicely with prospect season which, uh, after Kyla McDaniel released his top 200 prospect list, uh, we are currently in the midst of at the moment. And Cameron reminds us, as he did in print last week, uh, that really everyone is a prospect. One of the tricky things about looking at all baseball players, and not just prospects, is that we don't really know what the future holds, no matter how much information we have. We can become more certain and, and place more confidence in our ability to evaluate the information we have, uh, but there's not any point in time where anyone becomes a sure thing. It's Fangraphs Audio. It features managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. I'm at the dog park and I'm trying it out with headphones, so I figured we'll see if the, how the wind works. Okay, yeah. Oh, so uh, yeah, maybe a, a little windy, but we'll figure it out. Okay, well, I'll try and sit down so maybe like there's less movement. Okay, yeah, all right. How are you doing? Uh, I'm all right. How are you? Good. Yeah, good. Um, uh, you have commented on um, a couple of occasions, uh, Dave Cameron, that I uh, I have a tendency to bury the lead so far as the podcast is concerned. It seems to be your strategy. Right. Well, we're going to uh, run contrary to um, that the established pattern, and we're, we'll just talk about Yon Mankata right now. Oh, so we're going to dig up some graves this time. Maybe. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. uh, uh, so Yon Mankata signed, it seems uh, – now, did he sign earlier than we expected? Was this sudden? So I think there was rumors last week that his agent was asking for kind of final offers over the weekend, and they had said pretty clearly they wanted to make a decision by the end of February, which is this week. Uh, so I think we were expecting him to make a decision in the next maybe 72 hours. I don't think I was expecting it to wake up this morning and have him already signed. I was uh, planning on writing a piece, uh, kind of calculating what I would bid for Moncada, and then by the time I got around to writing it, that was – uh, obsolete. Well, what, what, what would have been your answer? Cause you well, I don't wrote, know, because I, I, I hadn't written the piece yet. I think I was going to come in around 50 million. And I think we talked about this on the podcast maybe a month ago or so when I wrote the, uh, piece for Fox Sports or for Just a Bit Outside, uh, kind of comparing him to you, Darvish, and, uh, you know, t- talking about how the tax could be kind of looked at as a posting fee. And, uh, I think I, I was certainly going to come in higher than 31.5. I don't know exactly what the number would have been, but I think I probably would have come in between 40 and 50. And when you're, and when you're mentioning those numbers, you are not including the 100% tax attached to them. Correct. That's just the signing bonus. So you just double those numbers. I think, uh, you know, 
maybe I'm aggressive with prospects. I think a lot of people would probably, uh, or at least with my valuation of prospects, I think people would probably agree with that assessment. But I think I would say a top 10 hitting prospect, which it generally seems to be that Mankata is considered, is probably worth something in the neighborhood of 75 to $100 million in my estimation. Now, you mentioned that you're aggressive with prospects. This will be merely one of the tangents we take, I think, with regard to this uh, discussion about Mankata. When you say that you're aggressive with pro- prospects, I assume you mean you're aggressive um, evaluating them. Why do you think that is? And I, I suppose what is it that you're considering that perhaps others aren't? Well, so right. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that I have some special insight. I could be wrong. Right? Right. I think a lot of people think I probably am. Uh, and I don't think I'm uh, aggressive with expecting them to develop better than they historically have. I think I'm maybe aggressive in valuing uh, those contributions because I think given Major League Baseball's current structure and how you can spend money, uh, there are just not very many ways for large revenue, big money teams like the Red Sox, Yankees, and Dodgers uh, – to spend their financial capital on a quality increasing asset. Like pretty much every free agent you're going to buy is probably going to be getting worse and come with significant risks of their own. And because of kind of the structure of the, the draft and the, the pool allocations, it's become difficult for uh, teams to kind of flex their financial muscle in order to really load up on a significant quantity of prospects. So when you have a chance to, you know, spend basically just cash, which is what the Red Sox did, and get a you know, potentially franchise-type player who doesn't become available almost any other way to these kinds of teams, it seems to me that you know, teams with significant revenues like the Red Sox, Yankees, and Dodgers uh, probably don't have many other better ways to spend it than throwing it at the best young free agent on the market in a while. Right. So no, no, what they um, – you, you performed some um... – mathematical tricks uh, in, a, in a post you did today. Uh, I think something to the effect of why Yon Mankata, or, you know, why $63 million makes sense for him. Um, you have a, a way of going through it, and I, I suppose you have a – there's a point that would be a, kind of a break-even point. I guess what I want you to, to tell me is what what is the sort of break-even point um, for signing a player or signing Mankata specifically, and how did you how do you reach that conclusion? So I'll say that uh, the graph that I produced uh, with kind of a probability distribution uh, was essentially based on inferred uh, valuations from the Red Sox signing. So it's not that I went through and calculated every possible outcome for Yuan Mankata based on historical evidence, because we don't really have that, to be honest. Like, there's not that many 19-year-old Cuban kids who have come over uh, where we can really draw strong conclusions. We can compare him to comparable prospect types uh, and come to some uh, you know, buckets, but we're, there's a lot of guesswork in this. So, uh, essentially what I did is took the Red Sox $63 million price, which includes the 100% tax, and said, maybe this is something like what they're inferring their own internal values based on this price is like a, basically a 30% chance of going bust and a 70% chance of some level of success varying from, you know, decent solid average player to superstar, uh, and tried to allocate and say, okay, based on these probabilities of each kind of bucket like you know there's a you know one percent chance or half of one percent chance that he turns into andrew mccutcheon and is worth 250 million dollars and there's you know a 20 percent chance that he turns into neil walker and is worth 100 million dollars and there's you know a 20 percent chance that he turns into omar infante and is worth 20 million dollars if we just kind of add it all up uh, and say you basically just take the probability times the value and then sum it and say you know this is kind of what you would expend 
uh, in terms of the overall distribution of events that you're expecting. Okay. Um, now, you mentioned at 1.2 uh, this idea of um, teams being – or there's only certain so many ways teams with um, money to spend can actually spend that money in a way that provides surplus value. I, I'm curious – we might have discussed this last week or the week before – is that a similar concept? Does that concept also apply to to some of the the Dodgers moves this offseason, in particular their trade with the Marlins? Yeah, I think so. I think like the Major League Baseball has tried to make it more difficult. They haven't succeeded entirely, but their goal has been to make it hard for teams to just buy prospects out and out. Uh, and you know, as we're going to see an international draft probably occur in in the future, I think it's going to become more difficult. And this is maybe the last hurrah, or this summer might be the last hurrah. Uh, for teams to really just expend their financial capital and buy a bunch of talent. Um, so if you're the Yankees and you have mountains of cash and you're, you know, you're going to make money no matter how much your payroll is or how much you spend on amateur players, the only question you're really asking is how much profit do I want to make? And is it worth it to me to spend, you know, an extra 20 or $30 million to get a chance to have the kind of player that's going to cost me $250 million if I try and sign him as a free agent when he's 27 years old? Uh, you know, I think if we were to, to kind of pose this and say, you know, could the Yankees uh, have run the exact same payroll that they're going to run had they signed Mankata? The answer is, of course, there's no opportunity cost for the Yankees here uh, and probably for the Dodgers as well. Like, this is not the kind of signing that's going to prohibit them from doing anything else they want to do. The question is, how much money do the Steinbrenners want to make? And apparently, in this case, the Steinbrenners wanted to make more money, so the Yohan Mankata's on the Red Sox. Uh, yeah, no. I think we had talked. Uh, there were rumors about thirty, about thirty million dollars, maybe thirty to even to forty million dollars. And I think you had said, well, if that's where the rumored, if that's where the rumored cost is from Ancada, then we can, you know, it, it's only fair to to think that the actual cost might be a little bit higher if we know that you know maybe a couple or three teams are willing to spend that much. Uh, that didn't that actually didn't turn out to be the case. Is there any? Um, sense that you have of why the Yankees and the Dodgers in particular uh, weren't willing to spend more money? So I think there's going to be some backstory that's probably going to come out that's going to be pretty interesting. I think so with the Yankees, uh, there were some reports on Twitter this morning that Brian Cashman met with the media and made it pretty clear that he wanted to go higher on Makata and he just wasn't allowed. He wasn't given the financial flexibility to do so. I think one of the interesting things about this, and I touched on it a little bit in the post, is that this is a, essentially an ownership decision. There's no GM in baseball who gets to write a $65, $70 million check on his own uh, and just say, hey, this is part of my payroll. And, you know, th- this is a special uh, fund that you're essentially making a request to ownership for a check right now in today's dollars uh, outside of what has already been budgeted for your team. So, you know, if you have, like, uh, kids or something, like, if you look at it and say, okay, you know, Maybe in the analogy is we're parents and we give them an allowance of, you know, $20 a week or something, and they come to you and say, hey, there's a sale on this toy that I've been wanting for a really long time, and there's only two left in the world, and I want to buy one of the two, and by the way, it's $1,000. Like, maybe you don't say yes, right? Like, even if it is a really good deal, maybe you tell your kid that they can't have $1,000. Uh, maybe Hal Steinbrenner decided that, you know, he'd spent enough money on the Yankees of his own money in current uh, kind of current day's dollars, and he was willing to give them capital to spend future money, but he wasn't willing to cut a 60 or $70 million check right now. The Dodgers situation is maybe even a little bit more interesting because by many reports, they are looking to be extremely aggressive in the next international market, which doesn't start until July 2nd. Uh, Yadier Alvarez, who's the Cuban pitching prospect who actually 
uh, popped up on the scene a couple weeks ago that Kylie McDaniel and others have written about uh, and is getting people very excited, he's not going to be eligible to sign until that period starts. So if the Dodgers decided that they really wanted to make a run at Yadier Alvarez, they could not have them both. They would have had to choose Mancata now uh, or Alvarez later. Reportedly, they made an offer to Mancata to, for $35 million if he would wait until July 2nd so that they could then also go after guys like Alvarez and the guys in the next class who maybe they've already committed to. Uh, understandably so, Mankata wasn't willing to uh, put his kind of future on hold for three or four months for an extra three and a half million dollars. Now you said uh, that Yari Alvarez isn't, uh, he's not permitted to sign until after July 2nd. Why is that? Uh, so there's a rule that states that in order to be eligible, uh, you have to have registered with Major League Baseball uh, by I think September 1st of the prior year, uh, and the Cuban players couldn't do that because they hadn't affected, and you know there's no system in place for uh, Cuban players to apply for Major League free agency until they're uh, not in Cuba anymore. Right. And so Alvarez and uh, there's one other prospect uh, have both been declared ineligible to sign until the next period because they didn't register in time to qualify for this period. Right. Okay. All right. Um, uh, of course, uh, I mean, with regard to how Mancada fits within the Red Sox system, um, I, you know, there's, uh, on the one hand, you say, well, they, they already have quite a bit of talent. Uh, why, you know, uh, there's no pressing need to add more. On the other hand, it doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with having a lot of good players. Yeah, I mean, so, like, this is not a need-based decision. This is, there's no reason not to do it. Like, the question is not, you know, do we need Yohan Mankata? It's should we ever stop acquiring value? And that's essentially the question the Red Sox are asking. They didn't need Rusny Castillo either, uh, but they decided that for $72 million, this was a good return on their investment. And with Mankata, they decided that $63 million, they think they're going to get more value in the future of spending $63 million now than they would trying to apply that in, you know, free agency or trades or whatever other way there would be to acquire future value down the line. Um, now, do you do you have a sense of when Mankata might appear at the major league level? Uh, well, I think the general assessment is it's probably at least a year or two away. He's 19 and he hasn't played in the ma- in the minor leagues before, so you, I think you have to say he's probably an A ball guy this year. I mean, you, you know, an aggressive assignment would be high A ball probably given his age and experience level. So now you're looking at. You know, a guy who starts the year in A-ball, maybe if he does really well, he gets to double-A by the end of the year, starts next year in triple-A, and comes up, you know, maybe second half of, of 2016. But that's the aggressive timeline. That's if everything goes well and he adjusts and he's as good as people think. It could easily be 2017 or even 2018 or, you know, never. <laughs> like, uh, But I think, you know, not at all unreasonable to think he spends two full years in the minor leagues. Yeah, well, I, I, with regard to him, with regard to the never comment, um, in that in that, that post uh, you published today, there is a probability graph um, looking at uh, Mankata's hypothetical team control value. There's a regular sort of bell curve, but then off to the very left, there's a huge spike up to him being worth essentially zero zero dollars. Yeah. Uh, and I guess that that's what that's a possibility as well. I, I mean, it's I, not a shocking thing to say, but that is a, that is a possibility. Yeah, I mean, I think you look at, like, you know, maybe the Jesus Montero situation, right? Like, this is another guy who, you know, was supposed to be a fairly close to a sure thing. I think at one point was ranked the number three prospect in baseball as a, uh, you know, special hitter who was drawing comparisons to, you know, Mike Piazza and uh, some of the best hitters of all time uh, and has been 
you know, below replacement level as a big leaguer. And, uh, you know, you know, he's maybe too young to completely give up on, but, uh, might head down the Delman Young career path. Or if you want to just you know, take a longer term example, Delman Young, the number one prospect <laughs> in baseball, right? Like, uh, Delman Young was, uh, considered probably a better prospect at his time than Mikata is now and has completely flopped. And so I think there's no question that there is, uh, plenty of room in the development curve for you and Mankata to be totally useless in the future. Right. Well, let's, uh, that would, it would, uh, it would, I'm sure that the Yankees and Dodgers fans, uh, would, uh, enjoy a certain amount of Schadenfreude, uh, yeah. in, that, in that particular case. But, uh, at the same time, you don't, you don't like to see guys fail miserably, right? Well, if you're a Red Sox fan, you definitely like to see the Yankees fail miserably and yeah, vice versa. True, I think, yeah. uh, I don't think there's anyone in Boston who's, uh, you know, just rooting for Chase Headley out of the goodwill of their heart. Yeah, but what, what a young Cuban gentleman. Who wants him to fail? Come on. Uh, I don't know. Who's Cuba's biggest rival? The Dominican Republic, maybe? <laughs> so, there's gotta be people who will just want Bancada to fail because they're mean. Yeah, alright. Well, yeah. I don't like that. Uh, let's see. The, uh, um, <clears throat> Uh, Yon Mankata is a prospect, but uh, Dave Cameron, you suggest that uh, everybody's a prospect. Yeah, I think uh, – so, yeah. One of my yeah, – I, yeah. I will say this. Um, uh, one of my uh, favorite posts that you've written – actually, you and Jeff um, both this week wrote some of my favorite stuff that you guys have written. You you were sort of uh, – you discussed this, that the veteran-ass prospect just in terms of looking at risk versus reward. Um, and then and Jeff, I think, wrote about – Prospects who hadn't appeared or hadn't been considered, you know, top 100 prospects during their time, and you, and in both cases, you get into that um, that murky territory where you start to realize that, um, well, it just uh, I guess uh, assumptions that you had made and on which you exist, uh, uh, you know, on which you have um, made other decisions, um, they uh, they're maybe not as sure as you might have otherwise thought. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the tricky things about looking at all baseball players and not just prospects is that we don't really know what the future holds, no matter how much information we have. We can become more certain and and place more confidence in our ability to evaluate the information we have, uh, but there's not any point in time where anyone becomes a sure thing. And I think that was kind of the, the point of my article that I you know may or may not have spelled out as well as I would have liked to, uh, is that there's... No such thing as kind of a proven major league player. Like, I think Ruben Amaro in some comments about Cole Hamels last week and they're asking him why he wasn't traded uh, and kind of about his future trade value. Uh, Amaro was basically stating, like, we have, I think he is a direct quote, he said, we have no risk here, which is an absurd thing to say, especially about a pitcher, but about any major league player, <laughs> is there's significant risk with every future performance uh, of every player in baseball. Albert Pujols, one of the greatest players of all time, uh, stopped being one of the greatest all players of all time with basically no warning or very very little warning. Well, you look no further than the Phillies, where Roy Halladay just one day was done. It seems. Yeah, like. right. I mean, that's there's injury, which I think people accept as risk, and mm-hmm. people just understand guys get hurt. But even outside of guys getting hurt, you have guys who just are really good until they're not, and they're just for whatever reason they just fall off a cliff and stop being good players. Like and, Bobby think, Higginson, is that what you're thinking of? I, 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 you know, I think like there were probably a lot of these guys in like the late nineties and early two thousands who are you know, you can maybe point to as P E D users and, and but even like I think in more recent years there's guys you could point to and be like, This guy was amazing and then all of a sudden he was awful and we don't really know why. And I think with any with any player when you're looking at future performance, you have to account for some significant amount of risk. Uh, and so, you know, with prospects, there's more. Absolutely no question about it. 
there's more risk involved the less information you have. The AAA players are less risky than A-ball players. The major league players are less risky than AAA players. As you move up the ladder and you gain information, your risk goes down, but it never goes to zero. Right, and, well, I think the other point is that when you're signing a free agent, for example, you are paying a premium for the lack of for the lack of risk. Yeah, right. I mean, this is one of the reasons why free agents are so expensive is because you're generally signing players who have a significant track record of major league experience, uh, you know, and you're saying, okay, because I have a decent amount of information here, uh, I'm willing to, you know, maybe overpay a little bit because I've got some confidence that I'm going to get, you know, a narrower range of outcomes than with that Mankata. Like, so with Mankata, we have like a, you know, 30% chance of him producing zero value. We probably don't have that high of a risk, uh, with, you know, say Chase Headley. I think, you know, Headley is, not that significantly different of an expenditure from the Yankees' perspective. It cost him $52 million over four years, uh, so a little bit less, but they have to pay a 50% luxury tax uh, on all their major league signings. So, you know, the Yankees' spending on Chase Headley is similar-ish to the Red Sox spending on Yuan Mikata, even though they get to spread it out a little bit uh, in terms of total cost. Headley comes with less risk, right? But he doesn't come with zero risk. There's a lot of people who think Chase Headley might just be done and his power is going to be gone and his defense is overrated by UZR. Uh, and so there's certainly some variance around Chase Headley. It might be less than Yohan Mikado's, but it's, there's enough there uh, to why a bunch of other teams didn't want to sign Chase Headley, including the team that had him before. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Now, uh, even within prospects, of course, there are various amounts of risk, right? I, I don't know if you and I have spoken of this of late or if I spoke about it with Kyla McDaniel, but like you look at the sort of prospects or um, or non-prospects that the Tampa Bay Rays tend to acquire. They tend to be the high-ceiling variety. Yeah. And so even if they have no major league track record, they've exhibited maybe their skill set is such that they are not the sort who are going to entirely implode. Like you can expect them to bring something in terms of production, even if the ceiling is not particularly high. Yeah, right. So every kind of skill set has its own risk reward profile. And so if you have like a five foot six middle infielder with really good contact skills, maybe like, you know, a shorter version of Joe Panic or something, you're gonna put a pretty low floor on that because you think this guy is just physically incapable of ever hitting thirty home runs in a season. But at the same time his contact skills and ability to play defense and run make him uh, the kind of guy who's probably pretty likely to contribute even if, you know, he has some hidden weakness that hasn't yet been discovered. So you have a pretty narrow range for a prospect of outcomes with a guy like Joe Panic and maybe you have a very large one with a Javier Baez, right, where, like, Baez has some really high probability of never figuring out how to hit a curveball uh, and, you know, never learned how to make contact. But if he does, uh, on the chance that he learns that, now he's a top-shelf player. So I think, you know, certainly there's risk-reward balances that teams have to break or teams kind of have to come up with for every kind of prospect, but also for every kind of major leaguer. Pitchers and position players have different risk-reward balances. All of this is trying to justify how much upside you can get uh, without taking on too much risk that it buries you. This is a, a simple question, one that would probably would require research, maybe has merited research in the past that uh, I just don't know about. With, in the case of a Javier bias, right, where the power is there, but uh, sort of like uh, his, his capacity to make contact, or like his, basically his entire future hinges upon his capacity to make contact, do we know what the different probability distributions are for for him, you know, reaching a certain level of contact or not? Yeah, we don't. And I think this is probably a good area of study for, you know, maybe young uh, people who are looking for a project on which to make their name. And I think, uh, you know, Chris Mitchell and his Cato uh, projection system is kind of working towards this. And I think, you know, it, the, the hope is that Fangraphs at some point 
we have some kind of fully developed long-term projection system that accounts for confidence intervals and uh, can kind of give us an idea of outcome distribution probabilities. Uh, but that doesn't really exist in a in a good way in the in the public format at the moment. There's people who've taken stabs at it, uh, but it's not an easy thing to do. And uh, I think one of the tricky things is we have. Um, you know, our past buckets mostly have to do with rankings, right? Like, so all of the prospect analysis that we've done and that I've linked to and the kind of evaluations are almost all based on, like, these categorizations of, like, top 10 hitting prospect or 11 to 25 pitching prospect or these buckets that are based on rankings. But within those rankings, you have very different kinds of players, right? Like, you know, uh, Mike Trout and Matt Moore were both top 10 prospects in the same year, but not the same risk profile at all. And so I think maybe... Part of the project would be going back through, you know, years and years and years of data and coming up with tags and categories and uh, kind of grades and saying, okay, let's move away from ranking and move towards skills and profiles uh, rather than this guy's a good prospect and good prospects bust 40% of the time. Well, what if we just went back and found, like, a, a player who who uh, struck out over 25% of the time and posted a 300 ISO at AAA? Oh, okay, so then you're probably comparing Javier Baez to a bunch of 27-year-old first basemen. Right? Well, like, well, no, but I guess you have to control for age, too, right? So that's, right, okay, that's then, what you're then saying. Then your sample size becomes very small. I mean, how many middle infielders at age 21 have ever hit for power at AAA? Not, not a lot. Well, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you got Brandon Wood as one. I mean, there's been like a few, but your your sample size becomes very small once you oh, start man, really yeah, but you don't the like, filters. You don't like the Brandon Wood comp, right? I mean, I think the Brandon Wood comp is the reason why a lot of people are super skeptical about Javier Baez. Yeah, that's right. Brandon Wood. Yeah. Did he, he was supposed to be good, and he was not good. Was he was he supposed to be a sure thing, or was there always that no. same nagging concern? I, yeah, I mean, I think anytime you have a guy with this kind of contact problem, uh, you, you know that it's a big risk-reward uh, buy. And, you know, I think Joey Gallo kind of fits into this mold right now as well, right, where a lot of people are like, wow, Joey Gallo's power, and a lot of other people are like, look at that, look at the contact rate. This guy's never going to make it. You have very kind of polarizing ideas on what Joey Gallo is going to be. Right. The uh, Brandon Wood did not play in affiliated baseball last year. Yeah, I think he's been in the indie leagues for a while now. Yeah, uh, well, at least last year he was. He played in uh, played for the Sugarland Skeeters. Yeah, a teammate, at least uh, one assumes for some time, with Tracy McGrady. Uh, didn't Scott Casimir pitch for them as well? Uh, he might have done. Yeah, they. Uh, that's a sort of a funny team because uh, the Sugarland Skeeters, I believe that's uh, Sugarland, Texas. Yeah, they are in the Atlantic League. And, Which, uh, you know, the Texas, Texas <laughs> does border the Atlantic. Right, well, exactly. Anyone really, uh, even with a, a cursory knowledge of geography, <laughs> is a little suspicious. But Yeah, I, well, you know, like the one of the minor leagues close to my house is uh, the South Atlantic League, right, which includes a team from Lakewood, New Jersey, which, you know, when I think South, I think New Jersey. Yeah, and at one point, wasn't uh, was one of those uh, so- Southeastern leagues, didn't they have a team in the middle of Ohio somewhere? Yeah, yeah, right. The, or maybe that's the Lakewood Blue Claws. I yeah, think. that sounds right, uh, yeah. Yeah, the team in Ohio in the South Atlantic League, because right. they're neither South nor Atlantic. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, well, okay, so we've dedicated some of this by talking about Mankata, some of this talking about risk associated with with free agents. Oh, a brief aside. What is what is happening with either Cole Hamels or Cliff Lee at this point? They're both uh, potential trade bait Um uh, there's, I know that it seems as though every post, I think Jeff Sullivan's written multiple posts on Cole Hamill's involved in potential trades. 
I think and, if I make Jeff write about Cole Hamels again, he's going to quit. Well, he's, he, so, he's yeah. so tired of writing about Cole Hamels. Well, there's a certain uh, unnamed subset of the readership that uh, seems to take offense to the valuations of Cole Hamels. Yeah, I think Philly fans are not big, not not high on our opinion of his trade value. To this point, I think we, if you're going to ask which side has been proven right, I think we're we're winning. Well, okay. And I, and I guess the Phillies fans, though, would be mirroring the thoughts of Ruben Amaro Jr., who has not traded him for anybody. Yeah, I think there's a, you know, this is a disconnect in kind of how assets should be valued. And there's certainly a school of thought that Ruben Amaro and it seems like a large contingent of Philly fans uh, buy into the idea of significant premiums being placed on major league performance and major league track record and a huge discount being placed on uh, minor leaguers and kind of future value, uh, to the point where, um, you know, the demands for Hamels, uh, don't make sense to any other team, uh, because those teams don't necessarily value the assets the same way that tomorrow and, and some Phillies fans are valuing them. Well, what do you, what do you view at this point as the most likely outcome starting now? I think if I had to guess, uh, I think someone, uh, maybe on the Cardinals or, uh, you know, maybe even the Dodgers, maybe the Red Sox, but I think the Red Sox, uh, ship is maybe a little bit sailed. Uh, I think one of these teams are gonna have a guy blow out in March. Uh, someone's gonna have Tommy John surgery, whether it's Adam Wainwright or, uh, you know, Brandon McCarthy or somebody, uh, is gonna just have their arm fall apart and that team is gonna find themselves with a significant rotation hole and, uh, they're gonna call the Phillies and say, hey look, you know, eat a little bit of money, and we'll pay a slightly higher price than we pay, offered over the offseason, and Hamels will be pitching for someone else uh, in the not-too-distant future. There's some chance that this could drag until July, but I think given the rash of pitching injuries that we see every March, someone's going to buckle and, and maybe slightly overpay. And I think Amaro's going to have a little bit, not necessarily the last laugh, but I think he's going to get a prospect package that's uh, uh, pretty good. I, th- I don't think he's going to get Mookie Betts or Blake Swihart, but he's going to get some pretty good players. And then... Uh... The, so, and then, so that's, that's Hamels Lee. The way his contract is structured, I think it has a giant buyout clause, right? Twelve and a half million dollars to make him go away next year. <laughs> right, so it's either, so he's either 137.5? Yeah. Or 252 something. 52 and a half, yeah. yeah so, yeah. like, the marginal decision next year is do you want to pay 15 million dollars to have Cliff Lee on your team in 2016? If he's healthy, I think the answer is probably pretty obviously yes. Uh, but, you know, if he's going to be healthy as a 37-year-old coming off elbow problems is a pretty big if. Right. And now, uh, obviously, they're, they're, they're largely based off of um, historical performance. I've noticed that both the zips and the steamer projections for Cliff Lee are uh, distinctly uh, not in line with his established record. And I assume that has to do with the fact that 35- or 36-year-old pitchers who, you know, only throw 80 innings in a year uh, do not necessarily rebound, rebound to previous form. Yeah, I mean, I think the tricky thing with comparisons for guys like this is a lot of pitchers who throw the amount of innings that Lee did last year probably did so because they had, like, season-ending elbow surgery or shoulder problems or some kind of, like, debilitating injury. Uh, so you're kind of comparing uh, almost based on um, health only rather than performance, or mostly health at least, where perhaps if Lee's injury ter- turns out to not be a big deal uh, and he's able to kind of um, continue pitching at, at you know, close to 100% prior health, uh, maybe his uh, outcomes are better than we would think based on just historical comps because maybe he shouldn't be compared to a guy who tore his labrum. Right, okay. Uh, let's see, what was I going to bring up? Oh, yeah, you, uh, you, 
this is all it's uh, all sort of in the same vein i guess because this is uh prospects in prospect valuation time uh you also wrote about uh, valuing the farm systems in which you borrow i think liberally from excellent work by kevin let's say kevin creek and steve dimicelli yeah if that's how i would have said them yeah all right uh i mean this is largely as uh, you've applied some of this to um, you've applied the basic ideas inherent in this to Mankata, but it's uh, you do see that I mean there's a lot of surplus value in prospects. That's that that continues. Um, that idea is made is made pretty plain by this by that study. Yeah, I mean, so I know like a lot of people are really tired of the term surplus value. Maybe we need to come up with a better phrase for it or something. But like essentially, the concept is if you have good young players producing value, then you don't have to buy expensive players to replace those guys or to fill that void, leaving you more payroll room in order to buy other players, right? Like that's the concept of having a good farm system is it's uh, giving you the ability to spend on other things. So if you can have, uh, you know. A guy who's 22 and making the league minimum and producing nine more like the, like the Angels get with Mike Trout uh, the last couple of years, then you can afford to spend uh, ridiculous amounts of money on Albert Pujols and Josh Hamilton and C.J. Wilson and still have an okay team even though you're lighting most of your payroll on fire. All right. All right. Well, uh, Dave Cameron, you have uh, fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. Well, hooray for that. Yeah, and I think we uh, we buried zero leads today. Was, Good. Uh, yeah. Yes. All right, very good. Uh, well, thank you so much. You're welcome. All right, that's Dave Cameron, the managing editor of Fangraphs in a field, in a windy field. Uh, I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.